Welcome to another episode of Bell Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Jennifer Lee, Pediatric Gastroenterologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, and I'm joined by Jason Silverman, my co-host from Edmonton, Alberta. Hey, Jason, how's it going? Do you have any announcements for today? Yeah, well, we have a few announcements. Just to remind everyone that all of our episodes are now CME eligible. So there will be a link in the show notes to find out more and to claim your credits. Um, and the other thing to remind people about is Naspian Technology Group started a Twitter chat. The hashtag is PedsGIChat. And the first Twitter chat took place last uh, after our last episode with Dr. Jim Squires, and we had Dr. Mohit Kahar from GEO in Ottawa join in and share more about pediatric acute liver failure. And their plan is to have one Twitter chat a month. So uh, everyone should follow at PedsGIChat on Twitter and stay tuned for more uh, Twitter chats in the near future. I think it's a great way to keep the conversation going. Absolutely. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm really excited about this episode about cooking. We've been getting into sourdough bread lately. Okay. So so you joined the trend late because do you remember that was a early pandemic thing? Everyone was showing off their amazing sourdough breads. Everyone was figuring out how to do their sourdough starter. I have to admit, I, I did it early on. I, I made a sourdough starter from scratch. You you soak some raisins and mix it with a bit of flour. And I got the starter going and then I produced one rock hard, super dense, heavy loaf. And that was pretty much the end of our sourdough <laughs> dreams here in this house. But tell me about your experiences because I think you've probably done better than me. It's been successful. I've done like five or six loaves now. And it has become like this new passion. We may, And I did not use raisins, by the way. So maybe that was your problem. Maybe, maybe <laughs> bad raisins. Yeah, bad raisins. It's just flour and water. Uh, but it's been a really great hobby and the kids have really gotten into it. And it's really good. We eat like a loaf of bread a day, which might not be healthy. <laughs> <laughs> what could go wrong? What could go wrong? But, you know, and I was just really thinking about the sourdough because um, our episode today is about culinary medicine. Which is such a cool topic. Um, really lucky to have Dr. Maria Mascarenas uh, join us for this episode. She's a pediatric gastroenterologist and nutrition physician at um, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She's the director of the Nutrition Support Service, section chief of nutrition in the Division of Gastroenterology and Nutrition, and the medical director of the Clinical Nutrition Department and the director of the Integrative Health Program. And so the Integrative Medicine Special Interest Group at NASPGAN recommended that we speak with her, and I'm so glad that they did. Well, on to the show. On to the show. Well, uh, welcome, Dr. Mascarenas. Thank you so much for joining us today on Bow Sounds. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm delighted to be here with Jason, you, and Jen. Oh, thanks so much. Um, we're going to start off with what uh, some people find to be the most challenging question, but perhaps it, you won't. Um, so for our listeners that don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? This is the elevator pitch that we teach the second year fellows, so I'm going to try. Um, so let's start. Um, I'm an Indian-born, U.S.-trained pediatric gastroenterologist with additional expertise and training in nutrition and integrative medicine. But more importantly, I'm a lifelong learner who is always trying to learn new things. I love learning new skills, working with my hands. And my motto is I'll always try something once before I say no thank you. That's that's great because that's our mealtime rule at home with our kids. So that's I think a perfect rule to 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 guide your life by. You can't say no in advance. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's true because you never know like something that you may love doing that you never thought you would have the opportunity. <laughs> this is correct. You know, I was recently asked to be associate editor and I I said I've never done this before of JPGN. Let me try it and I'm really enjoying it and learning a lot. So Yes, one should always try something once, like food, like we tell our children. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. 
So it, going along that learning, can you tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you read, listened to, or watched that you recommend for us and our listeners? So that it's, I don't get to watch a lot of TV or movies, etc. But when I travel, I do. So I recently, after two years, after two-year hiatus, went to visit my mother in India. And so, of course, it's a very long, two very long flights from here to India. And I got to watch some movies. So there was one movie I really, really enjoyed. It's called The Father. It stars Anthony Hopkins. Mm -hmm. And it's about a man who refuses all assistance from his daughter as he ages and develops dementia. And he tries to make sense of what's happening. And he begins to doubt his daughter. uh, And he doubts himself and his reality. And what was really key was I was able to get a glimpse of looking at his world through his eyes, how it was changing, how that didn't make sense. And um, given how there's an increase in dementia and Alzheimer's, it was really very insightful for me to see how someone else, what they were experiencing. And that's uh, kind of key, what I always try to do, to try and see some a situation or an experience through someone else's uh, lens, so to speak. Um, so this was, it was very, uh, it was a great movie for me. It made me think a lot. Yeah. Wow. That sounds great. I'll have to check it out. So um, one of the other things that uh, has come up on the show quite a bit is we, we've heard you love dogs and got a puppy during the <laughs> pandemic. Um, our listeners are probably sick of this, but, but Jen and I both got puppies during the pandemic as well. So uh, tell us about your new dog. So we uh, got Sully in um, September 2020. So he's actually Sullivan Lambert Mascarenas. Uh, <laughs> Sullivan because, I don't know, he's a monster. You want to call him Sully. And, and also Sullivan because of that famous um, the pilot who landed the plane in the Hudson. Right. So we were hoping mm-hmm. that he would get some of that bravery, etc. But anyway, he's a sheepadoodle and oh, totally nice. unexpected. And we had to drive to Indiana. We had to pick him up from Indiana. So rather than fly in September 2020 or have someone drop him off, we decided to drive there, my daughter and I, so it was a great trip. And he's home now, so he's a super intelligent ball of fluff. So he got his last haircut because he was mad at and for those of you who have these doodle dogs, mm-hmm. you know that they have a lot they get a lot of matting. So he got shaved down to the skin. Mm-hmm. And it's growing out now, but he's very intelligent, very bright. He's hurting us and he's always on the go. <laughs> he's adorable. And he joins our second dog, Charlie, who's a very calm three year old English cream retriever. So they are learning how to adjust to each other. And um, it's fun. It's really a lot of fun. I think the pandemic would have been really hard for all of us as a family without the dogs, but because they really have helped um, buffer a lot of the stress. And we've made pandemic friends walking the, walking the dogs. So we got our interaction with human beings just because right. of the dogs. Yeah, that's that's really important. Uh, yeah. Here's <laughs> mine. Jen is showing a picture of, of This is Kirby. Hers. He's a golden doodle. Also full of lots of energy, lots of fluff, gets matted very easily, hates to get his hair brushed, all of the things. Yep. Uh, and, very smart. Yeah. And our eight month old uh labradoodle is similar. Uh we've been trying to comb some mats out of his fur. I think he's due to get shaved down a little bit, although we're in Edmonton where uh, where recently it's been as low as minus 40. So we feel, and he is That's not fussed at all about that temperature. He'll go out and lay in the snow and he's totally fine. But we would feel really guilty about shaving down his, his nice thick coat uh, at this time of year. So we might just have to let the mats ride for now. Oh, I would let the mats ride because, yeah, I would definitely let the mats ride. <laughs> Yeah, way too cold, Jason. Do not do no, that. No, we're just we're just going to try and clip out individual really bad mats. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, before we get into our topic today, which is really to talk a little more about culinary medicine, we want to talk first about this fellowship that you did in integrative medicine. And can you start by telling us what is integrative medicine and how has it been helpful for a pediatric gastroenterologist? Sure. So, in, uh, you know, so I did my, my fellowship to the University of Arizona, and I really loved their definition, which is that integrative medicine is healing-oriented medicine that takes account of the whole person, including all aspects of lifestyle. 
It emphasizes the therapeutic relationship between the practitioner and the patient is informed by evidence and makes use of all appropriate therapies. So that's a long, it's a very comprehensive, but basically it's looking at a patient as a whole and looking at not just their body, but their mind and their soul and taking that into a, in relationship with their family, where they are and work really connecting with them and developing a partnership. So I think there is an element of integrative medicine that all of us probably practice at this point. But what I learned in the fellowship is really honing those skills, learning about motivational interviewing, connection with people, and then getting getting additional training in all the other modalities that work and learning how to incorporate them and when to incorporate them. And I would say as a pediatric gastroenterologist, it has definitely taken my practice to a different level. I would like to think my patients think the same way as well. But now I really look at a patient not as their disease. So this is not an IBD patient who also appears to be 11-year-old girl, but it's an 11-year-old girl in this lovely family who has IBD. And how am I going to create this healing relationship, which is not just her body, because with her body, it's medication that are going to help me. But what else can I bring to the relationship? to her life, to her family's life, that would help the healing environment. Because healing doesn't mean cure. Healing means you get better, even though you might still have this disease that may or may not be always under good control. And it's walking that journey with the patient. So I think that um, it's this healing, nurturing provider relationship with not just the patient, but with their family that uh, I have learned and that um, I hope I'm providing in the best way possible to my patients. How long is the fellowship? It's two years, and uh, it's all online. It's about a 1,000 hours. And there are three weeks that you go in person where you learn, you, you, you actually get to interact with these amazing practitioners. You learn some hands-on things as well. Um, so, yeah, it was wonderful two years. And the place they have it, it's in Arizona and Tucson, this, this uh, resort. Uh, but it has a beautiful, beautiful atmosphere there. It's in the desert, and it's just beautiful. And I don't know how to describe it. it. You know, it's just, it's it's a wonderful fellowship to do. I don't regret doing it, though it was a lot of work. I, I'm very happy that I did it, even though I did it in my mid-50s and people were, cra- and they, my friend said, you're crazy. You're going back to learn something. I was like, yeah, I'm going back to learn something. I always like learning something. Well, I think you do a really great job at selling both integrative medicine and the fellowship, I have to say, it sounds really great to spend a few weeks in the desert in Arizona, especially right now. Um, but uh, how, how is it that you you did develop your interest in integrative medicine? What what prompted you in your fifties to um, go back and take that extra training and want to uh, integrate that perspective into your practice? So I got to a point when I felt that something was missing in my practice. I had turned into someone who was prescribing medications, ordering tests, providing the handout, doing the education. But I found that some of my patients I wasn't really connecting with, um, and specifically the kids with more functional GI symptoms. I wasn't really connecting with them. And there was more that was going on than I could help with, and I needed more skills. And so I think the fellowship gave me that insight into look at them as the whole person, not just their abdominal pain or their nausea or their or their reflux, etc. Uh, it got me looking at the whole patient. And this wasn't that foreign to me. I'd actually lost some of it. So growing up, growing up in India, it's very integrative your care, you know. So you, yes, I went to the doctor when I had a strep throat, but at home my mother did other things that were more Ayurvedic, more traditional, you know, even the food we ate. Uh, there was always this meaning to it that I took for granted till now I'm learning. That's why we did this. And that's why we did that. And this is how this helps. And um, so um, it wasn't, so it was easy for me to pick this up because I'd actually lived like this for probably, you know, the first 17 years of my life till I went to med school. And then I learned all about allopathic medicine and how you poo-pooed all this other stuff that is so key to the fabric of what we do. It's like spirituality and medicine. We know that's key, right? We know that spirituality, not religion, but spirituality, all of us need. But how do you bring that back into to medical care? And how do you bring that back into relationships, into your patient-provider relationships? So um, that's. Uh, so I guess I've always been interested, but this I got reawakened to what I already knew. That's great. And, and just 
to build on that, um, you know, you you talked about your own training um, in, in the program based out of Arizona. Have you seen over years uh, uh, sort of a um, a growth in uh, integrative medicine programs or training opportunities uh, across the U.S. Or, or across in other centers across the world? Yes. So uh, let's talk about the U.S. first. But I think integrative medicine. Uh, uh, Andrew Weil started the fellowship program up and it's, and he's trained more than, I don't know, 1500, 2000 physicians now. The other big one is the, from the Academy of Integrative Medicine. Um, and then Hillary McClafferty also now has for, specifically for pediatrics, um, a program where she has online learning where you can sign up for different modules and then use that towards hours that you could do to sit for the boards at some point. Um, so there is a, there, there are many fellowships. I'm on the academic consortium for integrative healthcare programs and we, um, credential, um, and then recredential fellowship training programs. They're mainly an adult. There is no pediatric program alone until what Hillary McClafferty has started up with her academy, uh, which is all online, as I said. Um, worldwide, there is a growing interest. So when I went in 1986 to China on a cultural trip from CHOP, where we were giving lectures to Chinese physicians there, in Chinese hospitals, they actually have uh, traditional Chinese medicine and allopathic medicine in the same hospital, and patients can choose. In Germany, there's a unit, it's adult, it's not pediatric, where you can pick integrative medicine or have... Uh, um, yeah, you can pick that over traditional medicine if you want your care there. And I think there are many other places in the world that are beginning to do this. Um, in India, there are some places where you can get Ayurveda or homeopathy and traditional medicine. Uh, so there is this uh, growth nation uh, worldwide. For pediatrics, though, the field is lagging a little bit. Uh, Hillary's program is the first one uh, so far. But um, I'm hope and well, I should say Anne Ming, yeah, yeah at Stanford has a fellow pediatric fellowship program. So pardon my missing that. Uh, but uh, that's the other pediatric fellowship program. But so far, no Pete's GI people have gone there. I think it's mainly been general Pete's people who have taken the fellowship program. Okay. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll do our part in spreading the word. And maybe having heard you, uh, some of our listeners will be inspired as well. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> I'm already inspired to learn more. Um, so you were actually recommended to be a guest for the podcast by the NASVAGAN Special Interest Group on Integrative Medicine, and they specifically called out the topic of culinary medicine. And so many of us in pediatric GI do use diet as a therapy for our patients. You know, I'm thinking about the low FODMAP diet or gluten-free diet with celiac disease or CDED with Crohn's. So can you first start by telling us what is culinary medicine and how is it different from nutrition? Okay. So culinary medicine, but, so the terms are quite different, but so culinary is cooking, medicine is medicine, and nutrition is nutrition. I don't know how to break that down for us, for us healthcare <laughs> professionals. But culinary medicine is really aimed at helping people reach good personal medical decisions about accessing and eating high-quality meals that can be used to prevent or treat disease and restore well-being. Okay, that's the definition. And I think it's a wonderful definition. Nutrition, on the other hand, is more prescriptive. So, Jen, you prescribe a low FODMAP diet. They go to the dietitian. Dietitian says, here's your nutritional status. This is where I think you are. And this is what you need to eat, don't eat. And uh, here are some websites. And then that's it. Whereas culinary medicine is more hands-on, you know, and it really focuses on teaching patients and parents the value of food, how to cook how to maybe buy food, how to assess the nutrient quality, you know, reading labels, looking at fruits, etc. So I think it's really uh, more hands-on, more experiential, more fun, so to speak. Uh, it's really effective with people who want to make lifestyle changes and who may, may not have an expertise with cooking. You know, uh, there's some people who eat a lot of packaged food who have no idea how to pick a good quality apple or how to pick a good piece of meat or whatever it is. And so culinary medicine helps teach them all these things. Uh, when you look at it in the whole, in a comprehensive sense, there are some patients um, who are parents who are on elimination diets for allergy or whatever. They have a hard time finding food. So 
culinary medicine gives them some tools whereby they can now kind of explore food, etc. And really, with culinary medicine, we want to teach patients to enjoy food, get creative with meal time. So we we tell them, well, when we're teaching them, this is the recipe, but you could substitute this with this if you don't have it. So really, getting that creativity and getting them more comfortable with food and recipes and cooking, teaching people how to use a knife, teaching knife skills, you know, teaching chopping skills. I've learned new ways of cutting a bell pepper, which is now I've switched to that. It's just so much easier than the old way that I had of cooking a um, bell pepper. And I would like to say food is so important and we've gotten away from making our own meals. It's just easier to get something out of the freezer, throw it on the stoves, you know, heat it up and eat it. Um, and eating together. So I think culinary medicine also brings that family social aspect where you're cooking together, your kids help you with the food prep or other family members help you. And so really by doing this, we want to provide uh, patients and their families and healthcare professionals whom we train the knowledge and experience. Because if we are able to give them the knowledge, have them experience, then we are gearing them for more long-term success as opposed to here's a recipe. I'm not interested in that's it. It just sits in the drawer. The, the handouts just stay. And when you see patients at the next visit, they're like, yeah, I got it, but uh, life happened. I didn't try it, et cetera, because we don't, we don't make it, we're not passionate or we don't make it exciting for them. Uh, and so I think with like a low FODMAP diet, you can prescribe it. But if you actually have patients come in and learn some of the recipes with you, then that empowers them to go and look through all the other recipes that you may have given them and, and then cook accordingly. So, uh, you know, we're going to ask, so how do you cut a bell pepper? <laughs> all right. I wish I could have a bell pepper. So, so I used to, um, core out the top part and slice it and then make these long strips that were curly at the edge and then try to chop them. The way to do that is you cut the bottom off, cut the top off, slice it in the middle, take out the seeds, and then you make your long strips or fat strips and then you chop it up whatever size you want. And then the ends you just chop up. So it's, it's so much faster than me trying to straighten out those curl pieces to get the pieces exactly right. <laughs> if you want to take a video of yourself chopping a bell pepper, please send it our way. I'm sure Jason and I can learn some new life skills. You know what? I, I, I was just going to say, I so I was a dietitian before going back into medical school. We had to do actual sort of food service uh, courses in addition to the nutrition courses and um, actually doing some food prep. And I remember learning about that faster way of doing bell peppers, because especially if you are cutting up bell peppers to cook for 80 people right. or 100 people, you can't be sitting there spending several minutes on each individual pepper. Um, and I think getting out into independent uh, living and uh, family life, I've sort of gotten away and I've forgotten about that, but you've, you've inspired me. I've got to go back and now the next time I cut up a pepper, remember to do my uh, food service styles and save time. Well, and take a video and send it to me okay. so I can also watch your skills and compare them to Maria. Deal. <laughs> and then I'll send mine too so we can compare all three. Okay. Deal. Did you learn about the bear and claw when you're using a knife? Yes, I was the doing that claw, last yeah. night. I was doing yeah. that last night to 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 chop things. Uh, still not super fast, but but at least safely. Yeah. So, uh, just as a quick follow up, so you mentioned that the patients who are really interested in having a change in their lifestyle really benefit from this approach. Do you have time in a regular office visit to start teaching or going through some of these things with your patients, or do you bring them back for a visit, or how does that work? You can teach people little bits of information, little nuggets of information. And so um, I do incorporate. So I have an integrative health practice where we have longer visits. And then I have my regular GI clinic, which is half hour. You know, I'm kind of on the hamster wheel. Every half hour, there's a new patient walking in. But within the half hour, uh, I'm able to give them some tips about culinary medicine. And then I think um, when I tell them or share with them things that I do personally, or uh, problems that I have overcome that they might be facing, then it becomes even more powerful. Um, you know, so then, I, you know, I tell them how I got my kids to eat vegetables initially, how I had one child who refused to eat vegetables. And um, I tried and tried and tried and finally the switch got flipped 
and now there's no turning back. But I, sh- I think when you share the personal experience, it's so much powerful. And that's what culinary medicine does. So Jen, once you go for your first course, which you have to after this podcast, uh, you're going to say, oh my gosh, why didn't I do this earlier in med school or in residency? Because I have so much more now that can help me, my family and my patients. You know, I love to cook and I have to, I have to follow up on that. I actually had this conversation in clinic on Friday with one of my patients because the tips that I use, and I'd be curious if they're the same for your kids, but is just changing the name of some of the vegetables. So when my kids were two, none of them would eat anything green. So we started switching things and changing all the names. So peas became polka dots and broccoli became little trees. And now you're a giant and you're eating little trees. But the cauliflower are trees covered in snow. <laughs> so now they eat all the vegetables. <laughs> exactly. It's. I think it's the, yes, it's so much fun, right? <laughs> so you're already doing culinary medicine, Jen. <laughs> Is, is it too late for, for people that are out in practice? Uh, so, uh, we're, Jen and I are, are junior enough in our career. We're, we're not, uh, curmudgeonly. We're not established in our ways, but even, uh, I'm not, I'm not accusing any of our listeners as being a curmudgeon, but, but even people that are, have been doing what they've been doing for 10 and 20 years, is it, is it ever too late to go back and take one of these culinary medicine programs? It's never too late. It's never too late because you learn so many new things. And then usually at these programs, you get to eat the food you cook. So it becomes so much more fun. (laughs) Yeah, it's never too late. Okay. Do they have online courses? There are online courses. And we actually flipped from in-person to online because of the pandemic. And you get to cook at home with the instructor. And uh, at Penn, we're going to start up a series uh, soon. I think it'll be launched in the in the spring months. Uh, and Lindsay Altenberg is going to be one of the moderators or the instructors for that course, uh, where we're going to, the format is going to be, uh, they're going to be different topics. So it's going to be focused on adult medicine first and then pediatric medicine. But the first series will be uh, a lecture um, and then followed by culinary medicine with chefs and then question and answer as you go through. Um, and then you get the recipes ahead of time. So you can actually cook along by, by the, by your, whatever you need and then cook along with the crew, um, with the, with the chefs. That's great. And, and then you and your family get to eat all of the food. Correct. Correct. <laughs> yep. Save on meal prep for the week. I like it. Yeah. This is probably my favorite episode we've recorded so far, just because how much I love food, how much I love cooking, how much I love bringing my kids into the table. Um, I will say that since I finished fellowship, I have now had a little bit more time. Um, and so I can definitely see the relevance for trainees and practicing physicians for our patients. But what are your favorite tips to share for busy physicians? I'm thinking about our fellows, faculty, people who are just busy all the time. Oh, I have so many. I have so many things, uh, but let's run through some of them. So I use leftovers and dishes. So if you have a leftover meat from some dish, chicken or something, I chop it up, mix it with vegetables and put it to a stir fry, pasta dish, rice dish. I like one pot meals, you know, or soup, etc. So I use leftovers a lot. I also, uh, and this may not work for everyone, I cook on Sunday evenings for the whole week. I just cook. So then whenever I come home, there's always food there. I did this for my kids who are young as well. There's always food that can be taken out, reheated. Uh, some people don't like to eat food that's three days, four days old. But, you know, so from Monday through Friday, we have food that's, and then on the, on Saturday, I do, I will cook some. Uh, but Sunday is really my cook for the, for the week and uh, for the whole week. And what I'll do is I'll freeze some of, like if I make pasta sauce, or like a big batch of a chicken curry or some kind of vegetable curry, then I'll freeze half of it so that when I'm stuck sometime, I can just take that out, thaw it out, and I have a home-cooked meal. Um, so that's some of the... The other thing I do is I always like to keep in my refrigerator drawer carrots, celery, tomatoes, ginger, because the ginger, the carrots, the celery, they stay for a long time. And then I can always put together celery and carrots, stir-fry with ginger, and it's delicious. You know, you can put shrimp seafood in there you can just have it plain it's a wonderful accompaniment to any dish um i try to add herbs and spices wherever i can so because of the uh pepper turmeric uh effect you know when you when you use pepper and turmeric together it increases the anti-inflammatory uh potential like 
several, several hundreds of times. Um, so I usually put those two in combination and I sneak it in wherever I can into a recipe. I try to add herbs and spices wherever I can. I bring my chives and some of my other herbs in after the winter, after the summer months. And so they sit on a ledge in my kitchen so that I can just chop a chive and just add it as a garnish or just to increase the flavor. So I, I, I do that a lot. I, um, I do use some food strategically. So Trader Joe's, simmer sauces, they're a great shortcut. You just add your meat or vegetables or whatever you want to them. So when you're in a hurry, it's great. And there are probably other, I just happened to go there, but there are probably other places that have these simmer sauces that you could use very easily. And canned foods are good. So long as you rinse them out. So I'm never stuck if I want to make um, a lentil dish or a garbanzo bean dish. I just open a can. I try not to. I try to buy dried and I pressure cook them. And then I'll uh, pressure cook a lot and then freeze them in individual. Then I just have to take a, a small container of black beans out and then thaw it out and cook it. But canned food you can use. And then frozen food, frozen vegetables and fruit, they usually freeze them when they're their best. So I'm never stuck for vegetables because I always have a bag of something in the freezer. Yeah. And then I think the other thing is to, uh, this is for those of you who like to use Indian spices. If you don't, if you don't use them that often, then stick them in your fridge because they'll retain the freshness longer. So when I make, when I get blends of Indian spices, um, I just keep them in the freezer till I'm ready to use them. And then I just put a small amount in a glass jar. And that's what I use day to day or week to week. And then that way they're not, they don't get stale. Because otherwise they get stale. That's a really good tip because I've had huge bags of um, uh, curry powder or garam masala go stale uh, because they often come in these huge bags. Um, so that's a great tip to throw them in the freezer. So smaller bags is always better on the freezer. And just take out what you want. Yep. Yeah. I think I'm going to take that back, especially the cooking on Sundays. I was doing that for a while at the beginning of the pandemic, and I got kind of tired of the same recipes that I was making. But I think you're inspiring me to go back and try to do that again. Now that we have after school gymnastics and ballet and all the things, I think it will be helpful. One strategy I came across recently, and and I think we're we're going to have to try and um, uh, implement in our household is is we we also do the sort of Sunday meal prep for the week routine. But there's also another routine, and that is on Saturday, the question goes out, so who has ideas for meals this week? And there's, you know, this kind of blank stares from the kids, and I'm hemming and hawing. So the idea that I came across uh, in an article recently was that you theme your week. So, you know, Mondays are stir fries, and mm -hmm. Tuesdays are one-pot meals, and Wednesdays are bowls. or um, And so you don't have to have specific the same meals every time, but you already know that you're going to come up with an idea or a recipe that fits that profile or that theme. Um, and it just sort of reduces the mental burden of decision-making on coming up with the ideas for the week. Oh, that's perfect. I'm going to use that. Jason, thank you. But I love it. I will too. The other thing is to look at what the kids are learning in school. So when my son was doing Spanish class, it's like, okay, we're going to try some Spanish recipes, you know, this week or from Spain or my daughter was making a Swiss roll because she was in French, you know, some French club or something. So, yeah. That's, that's great. That's great. So I have to plug one thing from a prior episode. So um, for those listeners who heard Dr. Carlo Di Lorenzo's wife recently put out an Italian cookbook. And so yesterday we made their pizza for the first time and I'm going to show it to you. This dough took over 24 hours to make, so definitely not on the uh, – well, we let it rest for 24 hours, but it's an all-day dough situation. But it's just really fun, you know, getting your family involved and having everybody get messy and flour everywhere, and the dog was covered in flour, and it was a really good time. And we spent a lot of time laughing and just had a, had a great time. Yeah. You're doing dual duty. You're, you're making food for the week, but you're also keeping the family occupied and having fun <laughs> That's together. That's and, you know, this is so integrative. It's this interpersonal connection. Your daughter's going to remember this, you know, later on in life. So this is this is so integrated. That's why culinary medicine is such a part of integrative medicine. And that, that's what we're all probably practicing, but we just didn't put a label to it. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, you have mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, the transition for the CHOP program uh, online and the upcoming session in the spring. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the structure of the culinary medicine program at CHOP. 
So we're really focused on um, education as this is an education program. So it's medical student, uh, pediatric resident, and then patient education. So we partner with Penn, the Perelman School of Medicine. We have uh, two courses there. Uh, for the incoming students, so first and second years, and then for the third and fourth years. And they're wonderful programs. They're several years now, uh, and they continue to evolve and, and get refined. And we went from in-person to virtual, and it's it's been wonderful. We've also started uh, pediatric resident um, sessions, and they're not as well attended because the residents, it's hard to get them. So we're happy if we get five residents, but they're recipes. And I think the key success to our residents program, and actually all our programs are, there's always a dietitian and a physician there in addition to the chef. It could be a dietitian who's a chef, but it, there's always a chef, a physician. So we bring the medical piece, we bring the nutrition piece from the dietitian, and then we bring the culinary piece from the chef. And so it's this wonderful, wonderful, rich uh, environment. The um, on the on the patient side, we have focused primarily on uh, the ketogenic diet for kids with intractable epilepsy. Uh, we've developed a bunch of recipes for oncology patients, um, IBD patients, celiac disease, uh, those on elimination diets, those who need heart-healthy diets. Um, we actually have a mobile cooking cart that was donated by an oncology family, and the, we haven't used it as yet because of the pandemic, but um, as soon as things are better and we can have more in-person gatherings, we're going to be using that, and that c- comes complete with everything. We've partnered with Vetri Community Partnership. So this is uh, Mark Vetri is a chef, and he has this uh, outreach program. And so we partnered with those chefs, and we've done a lot of classes with them, and they're amazing people. So um, they're the ones we've done the in-person to virtual format transition very, very successfully. Uh, and really the key to the program is this close relationship with our dietitians and clinical nutrition. And so the medical chef is actually hired through um, she's part-time, but she's hired through clinical nutrition through the hospital. So the hospital funds this pro- uh, program. And so we're just making use of her, um, uh, you know, for, for all our needs and our patients' needs. So now that I've learned some about culinary medicine, can you walk us through how you frame the conversation about using diet and not medicine towards a patient's goals? And what considerations do you need to keep in mind as you're having this discussion? So remember, a patients, anyone, whether it's ourselves or our family, they only want to do something that they're interested. So you have to make it exciting. And for the patients who come to integrative health, it's a no-brainer because they want nutrition. They want something more, right? But for the other patients, I think we have to make it exciting and um, and basically show them the value of what they might do. And some people go for it and some people don't. And and that's okay. I, I figure if we can get even a few families interested in cooking and a few children, that's a win-win for me. So it's slow and steady, one one patient at a time. So I usually uh, point out the benefits uh, and talk about how um, you know there's a the, there's a uh, uh, there's less side effects than with medications, and how we can really use it to complement the other therapies. So not so much to use it instead of those subcases. Yes, you can use it instead of, but really to complement uh, what they're using, and then to uh, talk to them. Uh, talk with them, listen to them, and then come up with what they want to do, when they want to do it, and how they want to do it. So sometimes it could be so simple as, well, we're all going to eat one more vegetable a day for the week. Or over the, by the time you come back in a month, you'll have tried three new vegetables, you know, something small. Um, uh, so those are some of the changes. And really to kind of make it simple, one change at a time, to make it cost effective. So for example, if there are patients who are uh, food insecure, uh, is to work with them on that, connect them with the resources. We actually do food insecurity screenings in a lot of our programs at job. And so um, we have a food pharmacy, so we connect them with the available resources. And then really make it more personalized and expose them to it. You know, it's kind of, I, I did a course in clinical hypnosis and I just want to open up to them the possibilities. I wonder how you would approach this. I wonder whether you would like it. And I wonder whether you'd be able to eat more. And so that, that just makes them wander along with me. And it's like, wow, this may be interesting. And then when they come for a class and they're, and they learn something and they work together and they're like, I actually made something today. It's just just so empowering for them and the family because everything is done with the family. So it's just a wonderful, wonderful environment. So I think what I'm hearing is that you really 
start with a patient and talk to them to understand what their goals are and meet them there. Yes, exactly. Isn't that true of everything we do? Yeah. We can tell them to do X, Y, and Z, but if they're not there with us at the starting line, nothing's going to happen. That's true. Um, One of the things that probably some people will be thinking about is sort of cost effectiveness. You know, if you're hiring a chef, you're spending um, a lot of time in clinic uh, talking about these uh, these skills and and these issues. How can you talk a little bit about the cost effectiveness of culinary medicine and um, and whether or not there's uh, any um, whether the insurance companies will will pay for uh, this approach? The insurance companies don't pay for this approach. I, I should just come, come out and say that um, right at the start. It's very hard to quantify the effectiveness of, of culinary medicine. I think it probably has to do more with patient outcomes, and we haven't done this long enough to look at patient outcomes. And probably you have to look at this on a population level, you know, a, a bigger group level, so to speak. But we have a track record um, of being very successful with the chef for the ketogenic diet population because the chef had to really come up with recipes for the kids who were not tube fed, how to get this high fat diet into them. And that program has been successful, you know, as, as we know from the literature. So the chef was hired initially through the ketogenic program. And now we kind of use her for other things. Um, so we kind of borrowed, you know, uh, but it's all working out. It's all working out well. So our program is really um, the hospital covers it as well as philanthropy. And so we try to get very creative with um, with how we do things. We have hired a couple of dietitians now who are medical chefs. So we're trying to have them use their skills during their visits or, you know, maybe they want to do some community-based events for us. So we're being very creative, but essentially it's philanthropy and hospital support. Maybe that's somewhere we can think about in the future. It sounds like this is, I mean, this is huge for overall health and even preventing future onset of disease. And so I think that, you know, something we should consider from an advocacy standpoint. I agree. Absolutely. It, it makes it makes great sense. And and un- unfortunately, depending on your context, your setting, sometimes you have to uh you have to prove it even when it seems obvious that, that, that there's value there. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned in the podcast, CHOP Pediatrics Perspective, was taking foods that kids already like and transitioning it to something healthier. Can you give us a few examples that we could use in our everyday practice in Peach GI? So let's say boxed mac and cheese, right? Not mac and cheese from scratch, but boxed mac and cheese with color, etc. I would throw some peas in there. Guess what? There's some green in there, right? And the peas get disguised by the cheese sauce. Uh, and that's the first step to eating something green. Um, the other thing I would take is kids like hot dogs, right? So some of some, some hot dogs, they put like the worst of the worst bits and pieces in them. Uh, so just take a hot dog that they like, chop it up, stick it with some vegetables in another dish. And so they're eating their hot dogs which they like, along with something new that they may not have tried before. Um, so th- those are some of the examples. The other example um, that you gave, Jen, is to give those fruits and vegetables different names, you know, um, and then include them in a recipe. Um, we also, uh, I also like to play with different things. So, for example, ants on a log, you put raisins in some peanut butter on a stick of celery. Uh, maybe they like the peanut butter and the raisins, but maybe the celery is not something that they had. So then they, they eat that and they're, you're introducing them to one, one more new food, so to speak. So just getting creative and playing with it. And, and I think as parents and practitioners, we have all this creativity in us. So take a food they like and a food they've never tried before and see how you can marry them in a fun way. I love that. There's actually a a cute TV series on Netflix, if anyone hasn't listened to them. But um, it's called Waffles and Mochi. Have you heard of this, Maria? I love this. So uh, Michelle Obama is the one, I think she's one of the key characters here. And there's a Waffles who is 
His mother is a frozen waffle and father is a Yeti. <laughs> and there's a mochi ball and they have faces on them and they tell stories about different foods. And one episode is dedicated to salt and how salt changes the flavor. And for example, they're going to put salt in chocolate chip cookies. And the whole episode, they're putting too much or a little and how it changes the flavor. And my kids have started watching it. They're five, uh, excuse me, they're four and six now. And because of this show, they're more interested to help in the kitchen. And so I would definitely encourage it, you know, when you're looking for something to watch. I'm going to watch it now. Uh, Waffles and mochi. Uh, <laughs> we just bought the cookbook, so we'll see what happens. Uh, we're going to have to check that out, too. Our, our oldest, who's, uh, who's uh, eight and a half, has uh, come up with a few of his own recipes that that have mixed success, but he has shown an interest in uh, inventing his own recipes and, and having them uh, prepared in the kitchen. So um, I think anything we can do to keep keep the young people going in our family with their interest in making meals, I think that's that's great. Huh, I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, it's very cute. Oh, one more example. So uh, this was not, not my, my idea, but... Um, with Betri, we were doing a culinary medicine session on low FODMAP diets. So they made a zucchini pappardelle pasta. Take zucchini in long strips. So you make the pasta like you would, but instead of putting a pasta dish, there was zucchini in there actually. So um, Betri has been great with us with coming up with creative ways to uh, get kids to eat food, uh, veggies that they would not have eaten before. That's that's great. I mean, um, there, there was I don't know if it's going to fall by the wayside, but I know there's a uh, resurgent in those uh, spiralizers, right, to, to cut things like uh, like uh, zucchini into into pasta. So uh, and that's a fun shape for kids. So um, we I think you've talked a lot about where things are at right now in terms of culinary medicine, what it involves, some of uh, some of your practical tips and and inspired lots of uh, our listeners and and hosts uh, to take culinary medicine classes. But where do you think the future lies for culinary medicine? Where is this going? So I'm really excited about the future and really thrilled that culinary medicine is now part of the curriculum in many medical schools. I really think that by training the next generation of physicians early in medical school, that we'll get them comfortable with this and we'll get them incorporating this into whatever branch of medicine they go into. You know, um, I also believe that the way we're going to change things is by teaching children good habits as they grow up. Uh, so then again, they model that behavior. And even if they forget about it when they're a teenager, when they're back to having their own houses and they're having their own families, that this will all come back to them. So I really, I really am, uh, very hopeful that, that culinary medicine will be part of what we do. And there are a lot of resources already available. And so we just need to be more aware of them and try to connect patients and other healthcare providers with these resources. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful. That's great. I mean, uh, I think this type of um, food as medicine, uh, cooking as therapy, um, all of these types of uh, approaches, I think, are um, seemingly gaining more um, sort of mainstream acceptance and, and more mainstream interest. And so I think I, I agree with you. I think there's really good reason to be optimistic. So we have had such a good time talking to you, Maria, today. And looking back on your career thus far, what has been the most valuable advice that you've received? And what advice do you have for our listeners? Ah, this is a tough one. Well, not tough. I guess I've always been encouraged to follow my passion. And I would say, follow your passion. If you're not passionate or love what you're doing, it makes the journey and the job so difficult. And that's true of job, relationships, you know, you have to be passionate about what you do. The other advice I have is really to approach every situation and person with an open heart and mind. And then trust me, the rest falls into place. Don't change success. Don't chase success. Success will chase you, um, especially when you have good intentions. And serendipity has been my best friend. And as a very dear friend once uh, said to me, um, don't worry, the universe will cooperate with you. And I think if we stop and pay attention and we look at everything with this open heart and open mind and good intentions, 
it all just falls into place. That's great. I, I, I try and give that advice to trainees who are going through preparation for the match. And I always say things will work out, you know, you know, what, what, uh, you will, you will end up somewhere and it will be great. Um, they never believe me until afterwards, but, but I always try and give them similar advice. And I think that's true. I think if you, if you are open to what happens and what you can get out of what happens, uh, you, you can always find the good in, in what has happened to you. Um, so, so, uh, Ria, this has been, uh, just a, a fantastic conversation. We've really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Uh, do you have any, any final words for our listeners? Well, if you've not explored the world of culinary medicine, please do so. You will find that it brings a lot to your own life, your family's life and your patient's life. And you will really learn about the power of food. Food is medicine and cooking will be so much fun. You learn new skills and you'll meet amazing people as well. So please start the journey. It's a great plug. Yeah, for real. Let's all go sign up right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been, you both are amazing. You put everyone at ease and it's, it's been fun. Although maybe you're a little bit off the hook because if it weren't the pandemic, we may have just shown up in your kitchen with all the stuff and had you taken us through a class. <laughs> well, you should have come by yeah, last evening. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a bit far. Uh, it's a bit of a commute. <laughs> all right. All right. Bye, take Maria. care. Bye-bye. Well, Jason, that was such a good episode. I honestly forgot that you were a dietitian before. Yeah, it was so much fun to talk. It's always fun to talk about food. And it was a great conversation with Dr. Mascarenas. And I, I have to admit, we were talking about little time-saving tips and things like that. And she, she mentioned the trick about cutting up peppers. And I had totally forgotten that from food prep courses that I took while training to be a dietitian. And I've been doing it ever since we recorded this episode. And it's amazing what a little time saver gem that is. So if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at Sounds and on Facebook at, at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you liked this episode and really want to help us out, it would be great if you could do one or more of the following few things. Things. Uh, one, tell somebody about the podcast, share it with a trainee, a friend, a colleague. Um, let's get the word out because that really helps people find the podcast. Uh, to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Again, you know, those uh, five star reviews really do uh, let our podcast stand out and let people find the show. And lastly, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. And you can get there through www.naspigan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing uh, things the Naspigan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Bye for now. Bye.